I want to welcome everybody here this morning. And I have seen a few new faces, and I want to welcome y'all into our study of the book of 1 John together. We are in the middle of 1 John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to go ahead and turn there. 1 John chapter 5. And before we read our passage, I want us to pray. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as your church. And we want to worship you, Lord. We want to enjoy you, God. We want to rejoice in you. We want to magnify your work in our life. Your grace that you have revealed to us in Jesus. And so we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to worship you. To see you rightly. God, we know that you have told us, Lord Jesus, that we can't do anything apart from you. Can't preach apart from you. Can't hear your words apart from you. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your grace that you would be exceedingly merciful to us as we open your words today, God, that you would draw near to us. Lord, we ask this not in our own righteousness, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Be faithful to us in Christ to encourage us, Lord. And we ask, God, that you would make your word effective in our hearts and in our lives today, that you would exalt the work of Jesus in this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 John chapter 5. I want us to start out by reading our passage together. 1 John chapter 5. And we'll begin in verse 6. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. It's the Word of God. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. This is God's word to his church. This morning, okay, we have made our way through five chapters, four chapters of this letter so far. And what we've seen John do over and over again, and I'll remind us at the very beginning, is that the Apostle John writes to these churches and he gives them tests of authentic Christianity. He gives us criteria to evaluate ourselves to know whether we have truly been born again, okay? And, and many people have made, uh, 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 preachers have made an off, you know, off the cuff remark 
that one of the things that they love about the Apostle John is that he repeats himself over and over again. We've seen him do that, okay? We've listened to four chapters of this letter, and what he's done over and over again is he takes basically three tests, uh, the doctrine test, the moral test, and the love test, and he gives them to us, and then he does it again, and he does it again, and he does it again. And so there's a cyclical nature to this letter that he keeps coming to these tests over and over, adds a little nuance here, presents it in a little different way there, and that's what we see him doing again in this passage. This is another manifestation of the doctrine test. Okay? This is a reminder from God the Holy Spirit. He's, he's coming back to this test over and over again, and the reminder to us ought to be clear okay? that God the Holy Spirit wants us to know that it is very, very important Not only that you believe in Jesus, but that you believe rightly about Jesus. It is not enough just to believe in Him. You have to be right about Him. That's the doctrine test. You have to believe right things about the Lord Jesus. Okay? Nobody ever got saved from believing in God. Okay? That's one of the questions that you hear slung around in this culture. Do you believe in God? Jews believe in God that don't accept the Messiah. Uh, Muslims believe in God. But they're not saved, okay? There's nothing uh, about believing in God that makes you saved. Believing right things about the Lord Jesus, personal trust in the Christ of Scripture. This is what saves us, okay? So this is the doctrine test over and over again. You have to believe these things about Jesus. So this is what, this is what God wants to remind us of today. Who is the Christ of Scripture, I will say this on the front end, that there are two things uh, that are difficult in this passage that we're going to cover. Um, but, and we are going to cover them. We're not going to shy away from them. That's one of the things about uh, expository preaching. This is not typically one of the passages that you would pick um, off the cuff to preach on, on a Sunday morning. But if you are committed to giving all of God's Word to God's people, then you can't dodge these, these places of Scripture that are more Difficult to deal with. And so we're going to do that today. With God's help, we're going to deal with a couple of these difficulties. But I will say this. I will say this. That the main thrust of this passage, the main point is really clear. Got some really hard things, really difficult things to sort through. But the main point is crystal clear. Okay? And you see that. There is a word in these six verses that's repeated nine times. Nine times in six verses the Holy Spirit repeats this word, the Greek, the Greek uh, word is the word martyria, martyria, and it's translated in, in English as testimony. Okay, so this passage that we're about to study through this morning is about testimony. Specifically, this passage this morning that we're about to study through is about the testimony of God. The testimony of God. That's what I want us to walk out of here this morning, considering. And meditating on that God has given a testimony regarding His Son. And so before we dive into verse 6, I want to just give us a real big backdrop. One is a backdrop over the entire Bible. And one is a backdrop over 1 John specifically. And I think if we come with this high view of what's going on, it's going to help us really understand this passage of Scripture. Okay, So here's the backdrop of the entire Bible. In about, what, three or four minutes. So we got, we got a lot to do in a little bit of time. So I'm going to take that phrase, the testimony of God, that you see several times 
scattered throughout these verses. And I want to take that phrase and remind us that the God of Scripture is the God who testifies. Okay? He is the God who speaks. He is the one true and living God that speaks, that reveals Himself into this world. So this is actually one of the things that distinguishes the one true God from false gods and idols. Our God is the living God who speaks, and the idols don't speak. They're an imagination of man. They're not a living God who speaks. And so this is one of His powerful attributes that makes Him the living God. And in fact, in the book of Isaiah, when God begins to mock all the false idols uh, that Israel is drawn towards, one of the things that He mocks them for is these mute idols can't say anything. They're dumb, dead idols. So I want you to listen to this. In Isaiah chapter 41, we'll pick it up in verse 21. He says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them. Now listen to this. And tell us, What is to happen? Listen again. Tell us the former things. What they are. That we may consider them. That we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter. That we may know that you are God. You see what he's doing? Say something So we know you're alive. Declare something about yourself that we may know that you are God's. And then he says this, Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is the one who chooses you. And so this is him mocking all these dead gods, all these false gods of the culture. And he's saying they can't say anything. They can't declare anything to you. I'm the only one who speaks. I'm the true and the living God who speaks. This is one of His holy attributes that He makes Himself known through His powerful Word. Powerful Word. Now now answer this question for yourself. Why does He do that? Why does the one true and living God speak to us? And His design in that is nothing more than mercy. He speaks to us because He is mercifully revealing Himself to mankind and to humanity. And I'll just say this, just as we throw that up there, there's no person in this room that deserves to know anything about Him. Okay, All we deserve is death for our sins. We have rebelled against this God. We don't deserve for one thought, one true thought about this God to pass through our minds. But God in mercy has opened His mouth and He has spoken to us and revealed Himself through His Word through His self-revelation of His Word. He is the God who testifies. If He does not do that, then every one of us is destined to wander through the fog of human opinion your entire life. Okay, Unless He speaks, you can't know truth, you can't know God, and you can't ever be saved. Okay, So salvation itself is dependent on God testifying, making something known about Himself to sinful man. This has been God's nature to reveal Himself from the very beginning. He is the God who testifies, the God who speaks. Okay. Now I want to put a really sharp point on that doctrine. 
This is what we know about God. The, the one true God of Scripture. He testifies. And the sharp point is this. That the main focus of what God has always been saying. The main focus of His testimony throughout all of history. Is the Lord Jesus Christ. The main thing that He's always been saying. Always been testifying about. Is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who He is. And what He's going to do. And what He has already done. His testimony is Christ-centered. Always has been. And we know that. How do we know that? Because that testimony that God has given to humanity is recorded in God's book. The Bible. The Word of God. And one of the things that we know about the Bible is that book is about Jesus Christ. John chapter 5. He tells a group of Jews. He says, you search the Scriptures because... In them you think you have eternal life. But he says, but, you, but, but it is they that testify of me and you refuse to come to me. So Jesus tells us that the entire Bible is about him. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe that's a new thought to you. That God's word is mainly about Jesus Christ. That means it's not mainly your word for the day. Okay? You're not supposed to be treating God's Word as, a, as a, a Christian form of a horoscope. That you flip it open and get a little insight for the day. You understand that? Why? It's not even mainly your instruction manual for life. That's a very man-centered, me-centered approach to Scripture. God's Word and God's testimony has always been about the Lord Jesus. The Bible is about Christ. He is revealing what He is going to do in the saving work of the Lord Jesus. It's always been this way. It has always been this way. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 11 gives us this phrase called the eternal purpose of God. So as you begin to think about things um, in, your, in your finite brain, okay, uh, mine too, nothing special about that. There's different layers of glory and exaltedness about things that we can consider and roll across our mind. And I want you to think about this phrase. Is there anything higher that we could ever think about, ever meditate on, ever give attention to than this phrase? The eternal purpose of God. So let's break that down for just a moment. You, you know, somebody might have what they consider to be a purpose in this world. That verse tells us that God has a purpose. And then it attaches another word to it, an eternal purpose. That verse tells us that God has always been about something. From eternity past to eternity future. And it tells us that that purpose revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. The work of Jesus is the eternal purpose of God. It's always been His purpose, and it always will be His purpose to exalt and magnify and testify to the work of Jesus. So this is not an exaggeration, okay? Cover to cover, the Bible is about Jesus, His person and His work, a revelation of the glory of Christ. That's the Scriptures, okay? And it's also not an exaggeration to say... From eternity to eternity is about Jesus, who He is, and what He's done. He is the eternal purpose of God. And so I want to bring all that to a summary with this. That we have this God who testifies. And we have this Christ who is the center of all things. 
the main point of all things, the eternal purpose of God, and all this comes together with, with, with this fact. Once the Lord Jesus comes and accomplishes his, his work on His cross, His work of salvation, this actually becomes the final thing that God says to humanity. In a lot of ways, it becomes His final word to man. So I want to read this verse to you in Hebrews chapter 1. Maybe you've never considered this. Hebrews chapter 1, first two verses. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So I want you to see the shift. In times past, God did this. In these last days, God does this. Okay? So, times past, God was speaking of the Christ to come through the prophets. But something definite, something, some shift has taken place. God doesn't do that anymore. Now, in these last days, God speaks one language. It's the Son. It's Jesus. Okay? It's not that He doesn't speak anymore. It's that He refuses to speak about anything else. Okay? It is His final word to man. He will not move past this. In the last days, God has spoken to humanity about Jesus. This is His testimony. Okay? So I want you to see how much authority comes with what God has said about Jesus is from eternity to eternity and He refuses to move past it. Got to do something with the testimony of God about Jesus Christ. And we'll come back to that as we close this morning. The second thing I want us to see So this is what God has been doing uh, throughout history is magnifying the work of Jesus Christ. What about God's enemy, Satan? Satan has been busy from the very beginning trying to thwart that eternal purpose. Okay, Now that's a, 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 a really long exercise in futility. He'll never succeed in doing it. But he has been busy from the very beginning Trying to thwart God's purposes in Christ. And what does he do? What is his strategy? And we see throughout this letter that one of the things that Satan does over and over again. Is he tries to attack the gospel of Jesus. The real Jesus. The true Christ. And he tries to attack the church. And pervert that message. That gospel about Jesus. To heresy. Okay. He wants to distort the real Jesus. Into another Jesus. Introduce a heresy to thwart God's eternal purpose. And if he, succeeds, if he succeeds in doing that, if these heretical versions of Jesus are accepted by the church of Jesus, then we have no hope. No hope. Only the Christ of Scripture can save us from sin. And if these heretical versions, these counterfeit Christ are accepted, hopeless. Hopeless. Now, we know that he can't ultimately do that. He will not ultimately succeed in deceiving the church of Jesus. Why do we know that? Because Jesus promised us. What did he say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Even a few weeks ago, he said, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. He can't ultimately succeed in doing this, but he can have some measure of success on an individual level. People can believe a false gospel. And when they do, they are hopeless. 
Only the Christ of Scripture can save. If you latch a hold of a counterfeit Jesus, He cannot save you. So this is His strategy to introduce this heresy through these false teachers. He's been doing it from the very beginning of the church. So you can read the New Testament and He's attacking the true gospel. Read the book of Galatians. That's an entire region of the churches at Galatia. And, and, and these false teachers have gone into these churches and distorted the work of Jesus Christ. Fast forward several decades later, we're now reading the letter to, uh, of 1 John to these churches in Asia Minor. And the same thing is happening in the sense of Jesus is being assaulted. Lies about Jesus are being perpetuated. This is satanic strategy. So there's some slanderous charges going out about who Jesus is, who God's Son is, and I want us to understand them. So this, probably more so than any other passage in this letter, it is helpful for you to know some history, uh, some context of, of what's going on around when this letter is written. And so let's spend a moment doing that. Okay, Less than a hundred years after John writes this letter... Okay, so fast forward, you know, you're close to the end of the first century. Fast forward 100 years later, we know from history that about 100 years after this letter was written, this area of Asia Minor is swimming in heresy. It's swimming in heresy. Specifically, it's called docetism. This is a version of Gnosticism. We talked about this a little bit at the very, um, at the very beginning when we introduced this letter. So we know that from church history that these lies about Jesus were accepted in large numbers in Asia Minor. They were called uh, docetics. And the docetics believed that all matter, including the, the human body, was evil. Everything about the physical world was evil. That's a, that's a fundamental uh, form of Gnosticism. Okay? They applied that paganism to the Lord Jesus and they taught that because all matter is evil including the human body Jesus didn't have a real body okay uh, the, the Greek word dokeo means to seem and what they taught was that Jesus only seemed to have a real body okay he only seemed to be human um, like Old Testament theophanies when God would appear in human form speak to a prophet, and then disappear moments later. They said that's what the Lord Jesus was like. He only seemed to be human. Uh, many examples of that heresy in church history about 100 years after this letter. So what, th- what that does is that, that leads many scholars to this conclusion that what John is attacking in this passage is an early form of that heresy. Okay, that, that, Those lies about Jesus in seed form about a hundred years before he's going after that. Okay, And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I think we can get even more specific of what John is dealing with. Okay, Even more specific. There's an early church leader named Irenaeus. And he wrote a book called Against Heresies. Against Heresies. And in that book, Irenaeus tells us about a heretic named Serenthus. Okay? He tells us several things about this man. A couple of things you'll want to perk up and listen. Number one, he tells us that Serenthus lived in Asia Minor in the same area that these churches are gathering and, and meeting in. So he's there. 
Number two, Serendus tells us that he is, uh, Irenaeus tells us that Serendus is a contemporary of the Apostle John. He's alive at the same time that John is writing this letter. So So that ought to get our attention. And then the third is this. He tells us that the Apostle John and this false teacher have have public personal headbutts, public personal disputes about the Lord Jesus, about who Christ really was. Okay, so we have something very specific that I believe that John is responding to in this passage. And I want I want to read you a, a, a quote verbatim of what Irenaeus tells us that Serenthus taught. Here it is. He says, Serenthus represented Jesus as not having been born of a virgin, but as being the son of Joseph and Mary according to the ordinary course of human birth. While he was nevertheless more righteous, prudent, and wise than any other man. I told you this before, that sounds like Gandhi. Lip service to the Lord Jesus. Uh, you know, all that supernatural stuff about him being born of a virgin, him being the God-man, performing these powerful miracles. Uh, you know, not so much that. But he's a really great teacher and he's a really nice man. So this is basically what Serenthus is saying. Not born of a virgin, really good teacher, really righteous man. And then he says this. Serenthus says, Moreover, after his baptism... Christ descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler. But later Christ departed from Jesus and then Jesus suffered on the cross. And so here's what the man was teaching. Jesus, he he said Jesus was not the God man. He wasn't the one Christ with two natures, fully God and fully man. No, 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 no. He was born like any other man. And what happened, there's a big misunderstanding is what he was teaching. What happened is when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he was the Christ. And then God would never allow the Christ to suffer like Jesus suffered on the cross. So before Jesus went to the cross, the Christ left him and Jesus died just like any other man on the cross. This was the heresy. Okay, Very specific to this setting. To this time period. And before you get really disconnected from that. Oh, you know, great. You know, that's, that's really great to know. But, you know, I haven't seen uh, any uh, church of Serenthuses uh, anywhere around Metro Jackson. And I agree with you, right? But what we do see repetitively throughout church history is that same heresy is just repackaged in another form. Okay? That same lie about Jesus. And so what Satan is doing... And all these heresies is he's telling these perversions and these lies about Jesus that are trying to divide his two natures. Jesus is the God man. He is God and he is man. He is God to be worshipped and he's man because he died on the cross. He's the God man. This is, this is the exclusive, unique Lord Jesus. None like him. None beside him. The God man. And Satan launches these lies of he's, he, he's really not... Man, he, 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 he only seems like a man, okay? Or he's really not God. There was some confusion there. And so this still happens all over uh, our state and our nation and in this world. These lies about Jesus, these perversions of Christ. 
Okay? It still happens within the Christian community, with Christian cults. Um, and so you know this. You, you, you've seen them knock on your door, right? Jehovah's Witnesses' version of Jesus is not the God-man. He is not the God-man to be worshipped. He is a created angel. He is a false Christ. This is another satanic perversion of who Jesus is and what He's done. The Mormon Christ is not the God-man. He was a man who walked around on the planet who became God. He is a counterfeit Christ that cannot save from sin. So this is still happening. Even on the way to church today, I drive past this Mormon uh, gathering every single week. And the parking lot is slammed full this morning on the way to come preach the word to you. So this is still happening. These lies about Jesus. Okay? And it's not just in the Christian cults. It's in other religions. Uh, other religions throw out lip service to the Lord Jesus. And so you have Gandhi. Uh, uh, Jesus is righteous. Where, you know, I, I, I love your Christ. I, I don't know about you Christians. He's, he's throwing out some form. But he's, he, he doesn't have any grid for the supernatural Christ of Scripture. And even Islam in the Quran honors Jesus as a prophet. But cannot stand the idea of God having a son. Or God allowing one of his holy prophets to be crucified on the cross. Same thing. These satanic lies about Jesus. And I'll just chunk this in there before we're done. In case you don't know this, the worst place to get information about Jesus on planet Earth is cable TV. Okay? Every single time you see one of these shows pop up about Jesus, it is some conspiracy theory that we have finally recovered the historical Jesus, the truth about Jesus. And there is no end to the lies that they spread about Christ. And so this is his assault all over the place. Attack Jesus, and if he succeeds in that, no hope. Eternal purpose of God thwarted. And we know that that is impossible for Satan to do in an ultimate sense. In an ultimate sense. So, there's the backdrop. God's testifying to Jesus. Satan's attacking uh, God's work in Christ. And in the middle of these slanderous charges about Jesus... About these lies about Jesus, John brings in some witnesses to place in the courtroom of the human conscience. So these people are hearing lies, and John wants to throw some witnesses in their brain to, to evaluate these charges about Jesus. Listen to verse 6. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. So we've got these charges, and now He introduces us to some witnesses regarding the Lord Jesus. And here, here's what we want to do. Here's difficulty number one this morning. We got two. This is the first one. First thing that we want to determine from this passage of Scripture is how many witnesses does John intend to call our attention to? Okay? So if you have um, either of these versions of Scripture this morning, I want you to raise a quick hand. Okay? No... No shame, no jokes, no, no nothing like that. I just want to get a, a grid or a feel of who's reading what. So if you have the King James Bible, 
or the New King James Bible, throw up one hand. One hand. Okay? The rest of you might not even know what I'm talking about, but they know what I'm talking about. Because almost an entire sentence is added to their translation that the rest of you do not have. Okay? Here's the sentence that's added in those two. Verse 7 in those translations adds this phrase. There are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth. Stop. And at that point, it jumps right back into our wording. So you have this, this whole dynamic is added in those words of you got some witnesses in heaven. There's three of them. You got some witnesses on earth. There's three of them. And so the question for us is how many witnesses are we supposed to be thinking about that John is calling our attention to in this passage? Now, I don't enjoy talking about uh, what's called textual criticism. Okay, I think that would be a, a really bad way to spend an hour uh, preaching through this passage. But I do think it's worth spending five minutes talking about. You need to know as someone who reads the Bible... And you run into these little numbers and jump down to the bottom of these footnotes. And your Bible says, well, some manuscripts say this. Or other manuscripts say this. Or some wording says this. You, as, 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 a, as a Christian who believes that God's word is inerrant, it's perfect, it is everything that he intended to say, you need to know what to do about that. Okay? So we're going to spend a few minutes talking about this. How do we know what God really said in this passage? This is, a, this is an, uh, an issue of what's called textual criticism. Okay? This is not a question regarding the inspiration of God's Word. This is a question regarding what's the right reading. Okay? What did God actually say? What was the original uh, words that John penned to the paper? Do you understand the difference? Because we believe that it's inerrant and there's no error to it, that drives us not to add anything to it and not to take away anything from what God says. So more than anybody on planet Earth, we want to know exactly what God said. Okay? Now there are some places in Scripture that are really they're difficult to determine what is the original wording and what is not. Okay? That, that does exist. No, no fundamental doctrines of Christianity hang on any of these issues. Okay? That word that I just read from these two translations is a hammer uh, for evidence of the Trinity. Right? I mean, it's hard to get more clear than that. Okay, there's three in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And the three are one. I mean, that is, that's everything that you would want to say. Just boom, like a nuclear bomb going off in one sentence. Okay? But the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't depend on that verse. Okay? We have Genesis to Revelation, and this is the, the, the revelation of the triune God. There are many, many verses that te- testify to the triune nature of God. Okay? So there are a couple places in the New Testament where it is somewhat difficult to determine what is the original reading. This is not one of those. Okay? This is not one of those places to where it's hard to determine what God actually said. Every modern translation of Scripture removes these words 
from the biblical text. I'll repeat that again. Every modern translation of Scripture removes these words from the biblical text and puts them in a footnote or gets rid of them completely. Every modern translation of Scripture except those two. And the question that we ought to ask is, why? Why? And they do this in response to the evidence. And so let's spend just a quick bullet point on the evidence regarding these words. Here we go. Out of thousands, thousands, okay, of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, these words show up in eight. Okay? Jot that down. Out of thousands, those words show up in eight Greek manuscripts. That ain't good. Okay? Second subpoint to that. Of those eight manuscripts that have these words, Four of those manuscripts put these words in a footnote or in a margin note just like your Bible does. Okay, So now you have four Greek manuscripts that have this, these words in the actual Greek text of Scripture. Subpoint number two. Of those four, the oldest manuscript of those four is from the 14th century. That means in a Greek manuscript of Scripture, these words don't show up until 1,300 years after John writes 1 John. Okay? That's not good evidence. At all, that's not good, good evidence. Second stream, number two. Um, early in church history, the, the Greek New Testament was translated into other languages. Just like we do today. You have an English Bible because God stirred up some missionaries and they went to English-speaking people, preached the gospel of Jesus... Believers were gathered together in local churches and the scriptures were translated into those tongues by men who love God. Okay? That happened in, in the first several hundred years of the church. God caused the gospel to go into these other languages and the scriptures were translated in those languages. So you have the Syriac Bible, the Coptic Bible, the early uh, Latin Bible called the Vulgate. And here's the thing. Out of all those early translations, none contain these words in the book of 1 John. So that's not good evidence. Okay, A lot of evidence stacked against this. And the last stream of evidence is the church fathers. These church leaders, I don't like calling them church fathers. I like calling them church leaders, but people refer to them as the church fathers. And, the, and they attacked heresy uh, in their day. Uh, these were men that loved God. And here's something you need to know about them. Uh, we have thousands of pages of their writings, of what they taught, what they said. We have uh, examples of them directly engaging with heresy about Jesus. And here's the backdrop to those church leaders, those Greek church fathers uh, in the first several hundred years. Almost every single council, church council in the first several hundred years regarded the triune nature of God. It was like heresies busting loose all over the place for 400 years about who Jesus really was. Okay? And so they would meet and they would condemn this heresy and meet and formulate this creed and meet and condemn that heresy. And almost every one, one of them touch on the Trinity. Okay? On God as a triunity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. We have extensive uh, pages to where they're setting forth this doctrine of the Trinity. And here's the amazing thing. Not one time... Do those early church leaders quote this verse? Not one time. They quote all, all, all over the scriptures. Okay? 
And so the question is, is really this. Why in the world, if you have a nuclear bomb to solve every problem about the Trinity, just says it, just as plain as you could ever say it, why in the world would you never use your, your uh, clearest weapon? Okay? And so all of those streams of evidence have led every modern Bible translation to reject this wording. Okay? You will hear this mainly from King James only crowd. That these, these Bibles nowadays, they just don't take God's word serious. They take verses out of the Bible. And it's actually the exact opposite that God has commanded us not to add to his word. Not to add to his word. So it's actually the exact opposite. Those words are pulled out because we are more serious about the scriptures, not less serious about the scriptures. So this, is, this should give you a tremendous confidence that we have God's word. We have God's word. Our modern Bible translations are the word of God. They're the word of God. So back in our text. There's the textual variant. And the answer to our question is that John intends to call our attention to three witnesses in response to these charges about the Lord Jesus. The water, the blood, and the Spirit of God. Difficulty number two. Okay? The first two witnesses go together. Okay, the false teachers are trying to take them apart. We'll talk about that. The first two witnesses that John introduces are the water and the blood. This is he who came by the water and the blood. Okay. Question, you know, in the difficulty is what in the world does that mean? What does this mean that, that Jesus came to us by the water and by the blood? This is a, another difficulty. There are interpretations all over the map as to what that means. But most people, most commentators, and, I, and I'm convinced that this is right, okay, take this to mean the water, the baptism of Jesus, and the blood, the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay? He came to us through baptism and through His cross. So that's what John is saying about Jesus in response to these heresies. This is a direct, think about this, this is a direct assault on what Sorrentha said about Jesus. Sorrentha said, the Christ came on him at baptism, left him before the cross. And, act, and John says, actually, Jesus Christ was Jesus Christ before his baptism. He came through baptism as Jesus Christ, and He came through the cross as Jesus Christ. He is assaulting those lies about Jesus with that phrase, the water and the blood. And I wonder how precious this is to you, okay? The water and the blood. This is what we're going to sit in for a few minutes and consider about the Lord Jesus. He came to us through the water and through the blood. This is a reference to the very beginning and the very end of his public messianic ministry. His public messianic ministry. Both the baptism and the cross are recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is an amazing thing. When you consider some of the things that are not in all four Gospels. Like the birth of Jesus. Okay? 
The birth of Jesus Christ shows up in two of the four. But the baptism of Jesus Christ shows up in four of four. There is something essential that we need to be getting about the one who came to us through both of these. Not one only, but through both of these. So I want us to see the significance of the water and the blood and the unity of it. Unity of it. Not just one or the other. Okay? False teachers were saying He came through the water only. But the truth is, is that He came through the water and the blood. So what are we supposed to know about this? Let's start with the baptism of Jesus. And I'm praying that God would help us to worship Him as we see these truths unfolded in His Word. I want, to, I want my life to be constantly marked by, Oh, I didn't know that about Jesus. Oh, I see more glory in things that I've read 20, 30, 50 times about Jesus. I see more beauty. I want to worship Him more and more. I want to grow in my knowledge of Christ. And that's the heartbeat that I'm praying that God would, would do as we, as we consider these words of Scripture, that God would call us into worship Christ, to know Him more. He came to us through the water. So the baptism of Jesus, I want you to see it as the public revelation of the Messiah to Israel. This is His coronation ceremony. Okay, He's coming into His public office. He's not... Shine away in, in Nazareth anymore. He's coming into his many messianic office. Okay? This is his baptism, the public revealing of the Messiah. It was at this moment that the Lord Jesus was anointed to his public office as God's prophet, priest, and king. This is when he he, he received these, these public roles from his father. So I want you to see this. Prophet, priest, and king. Something definite happened when Jesus entered into the waters and came out. And, here, and here's what's going on. Okay, He is being revealed at this point as God's true priest. The priest of God. He, that's, his, that's, that's one of His offices. And you say, what do you mean? I mean, the baptism of Jesus is a head scratcher. Okay, And you say, well... Not a head scratcher to me. It's in the Bible. I believe it. I, I'm with you. Okay. But there's some head scratching involved with it. And you say, why? I say, well, well what, what I know about Jesus is that he's sinless. He never sinned. Okay. And what I know about baptism, the baptism of John, is that baptism is called a baptism of repentance. And so I'm scratching my head and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering why in the world is this sinless Christ standing in the waters of repentance? Okay, Why is that happening? And that's the same thing that John the Baptist was scratching his head over. Jesus came to be baptized by John. And John said, listen, I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, you're not going to understand this. Basically, is what Jesus said. But I have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. He said, permit it to be so for now. I have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So, so what's going on is that Jesus... Is taking his public office of priest. It is at this moment that he is beginning to publicly identify with sinners. Okay? We're going to see him finish that work in just a few minutes. But this is the beginning of it. He is God's priest. He is God's priest. We see this at the baptism. Not only that, in his baptism, Jesus was also revealed as God's prophet. 
God's prophet. After Jesus comes up out of the water, the Bible teaches us that God the Holy Spirit anoints His human nature with immeasurable power. He becomes the anointed of God, given the Holy Spirit without measure. Listen to how Acts chapter 10 talks about this. Acts chapter 10 verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with Him. So as He comes up out of the water, God the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon His human nature and empowers Him to speak the words of God and to do the works of God. He is God's prophet. He is God's prophet. And we see that at His baptism. He's being publicly revealed. But also, He is appointed to His public office of God's King. He is God's King. And we see this at His baptism. So what happened? Goes down into the water, identifies with sinners, comes out of the water. God the Holy Spirit rests upon Jesus, remains upon Him. Immeasurable power given to Jesus. And what happens next? A voice thunders from the heavens from God the Father. And what does He say? He says, this is my Son. This is my Son. If you know your Bible... And, and all those Jews that were standing around Jesus during that baptism did, you would know that that is a direct quotation from Psalm chapter 2. God the Father is announcing Jesus at His baptism as the long-awaited Son of Psalm chapter 2. Now, the long-awaited Son of Psalm chapter 2, you go back and read this, He is the one... He is the King of God that is destined to reign over all the nations with a rod of iron. He will rule all that you can imagine. And He comes up, receives the Spirit, and God says, That's Him! Psalm chapter 2, that's the one right there. This is my Son. He is my King. Okay, He is announced to be God's King at His baptism. But that's not all the Father said. The full phrase is this. He says, this is my Son. And then He says this phrase, with you I am well pleased. And the last half of what God said, first half was a reference to John, uh, Psalm chapter 2. The last half, with you I am well pleased, comes from Isaiah chapter 42. So what the Father's doing is He's connecting the Lord Jesus through these prophecies that have been sitting dormant for hundreds of years. Listen to what Isaiah 42 says. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He is God's king. He is God's King. He is publicly revealed to be no longer the long-awaited one. He is here. He is God's King. And the Father's words and that phrase, what God the Father does as He announces from heaven, from a ripped open sky, those words were heard. Okay, And He announces those words from heaven. And what He does with that sentence about Jesus 
is he fuses together two strands of Old Testament prophecy. And he connects them to one person. You say, what do you mean? Well, he just connected the one who is to strike and rule and reign over all nations with a rod of iron. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your heritage, the ends of the earth as your possession. Psalm 2, that's Jesus. You're my son. This is God's king. And he welds that together with this other stream of Old Testament prophecy. The stream of Isaiah's suffering servant. Isaiah 42. This is my servant in whom I am well pleased. You read the last half of the book of Isaiah. And you know what happens to this servant. Isaiah chapter 53. This servant is the one who would suffer and give his life as a ransom. He would make many righteous through his suffering. And with one phrase from the mouth of God the Father. He welds those two things together. Jesus is destined to reign and to suffer. This is His messianic ministry that He has received from God the Father. This is the baptism. Glory is revealed about Jesus in this moment. That's why every single gospel writer talks about this. This is important. The initiation of His messianic work. So you think about this. We'll come back to this. For a minute. Why did the sinless Messiah. Why did he receive the baptism of repentance of sin? Some of you are saying. Yeah you mentioned that a minute ago. I still don't get that. Okay. Why is the sinless one. Receiving the baptism. Of the repentance of sin. And the answer to that question. Takes you to the very root. Of why Jesus has invaded this world. Okay. They said. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Call His name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. That is why He is here. That is why He is in the water. Okay, He came to save us from our sins. And there's one way that you can sum up all that. His ministry is a ministry of substitution. Substitution. The Lord Jesus could have came, kept all of God's commandments, been concerned with only His righteousness, died sinless and received glory from His Father. But here, we see Him concerned about us. It's not just about Him doing His own thing. He comes and He stands in the waters of repentance with sinners. He is publicly identifying with us. He came to save His people from their sins. And so what these false teachers don't get is they're misinterpreting his entire ministry. Okay? They saw the baptism of Jesus. They said he came by water only. They saw the baptism of Jesus as a way to get the anointing, the way that Jesus received his deity. They misinterpreted the, the main reason of why he invaded the world was to save his people from their sins. And so what John is saying is no, no, no. The same Christ that began his ministry in baptism, finished his ministry on a bloody cross. He is the one who came to us by the water and by the blood. His ministry of substitution. He is the Messiah. And so he comes to us through the water. He begins this ministry. And through the blood on the cross, he finishes this messianic ministry, this work of salvation that he received. From the Father. So you think about it. God's King, God's anointed King, 
ask of me, and I will give the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. Nothing is beyond his, his reach. And you have God's king dying on a cross, being murdered and hammered to a cross. And you're thinking, what's going on here? That king is finishing that ministry that he received from his father. He's finishing the ministry that he received from his father. It seems to be weakness. You read it, and it seems to be weakness that you see in Jesus as he died on the cross. The Jews mocked him. If you're the Christ of God, come down from the cross. That's what they're saying about him. But what seems to be weakness is a display of immeasurable power in Jesus Christ the King. John chapter 10, Jesus says these words. He, he, he talks about the authority that He has in and of Himself. And He says something that nobody in this room could ever say. He says, I have the authority to lay down my own life. He is sovereign over the moment that He dies. And then He goes on to say, and I have authority to take it back up again. I control when I die. I control when I rise. That's how much authority God's King has. That's how much power Jesus has as God's King. And He willingly gives His life over for His sinful subjects. A display of His power to save sinners. Not only that, at His cross, He came to us through the water and the blood. You see, God's priest present the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. This is the final one. This is the one that God the Father refuses to move past. This is the, the nail that will be hammered throughout eternity that Christ has died for our sins. Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. At the end of the ages, He finishes it all by sacrificing Himself. This is God's priest. He is finishing His ministry. And not only that, on the cross you see God's prophet. And He speaks the final word in regard to His messianic word. John chapter 19 verse 30. The Son of God, as He's dying on the cross, His last phrase to mankind as a revelation of God. As He says, it is finished. It is finished. You think about what he could have said. He could have said, it has begun. It has begun. From this point forward, we will conquer all things. I will build my church from this point forward. But instead, he says that in that moment where his life was given over for our sins, he finished something on our behalf. It is finished. This is that messianic work. He came into this public office and was given this task. This work of salvation from God the Father. And He finished it. He finished it. Mission accomplished. Our mission, his ministry of substitution is over. It is finished on our behalf. This is the one who came to us by the water and by the blood. Baptism and cross. Now, Mark's Gospel specifically tells us that at both of those events... God the Father responded to the work of Christ in the water and in the blood. And this is really powerful. Something I didn't even see as we studied through the entire book of Mark. Is there's a verb 
um, in, in, in that gospel that's used twice. It's translated in our Bibles as torn open. Torn open. And the Bible teaches that, uh, that at the baptism of Jesus and at the cross of Jesus, something was torn open by God the Father. Only two times it's used. This is the way God fra- Mark frames up the significance of His baptism and His death on the cross. So at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father takes the heavens and He tears them in half to speak a word about His Son. This is my Son. Ripped open, rent asunder, torn apart. God the Father tears the sky in half to make an announcement about Jesus. Next time that word shows up in Mark's Gospel is as Jesus gives His life for our sins. The Bible says that the temple curtain was literally ripped in half from top to bottom. God the Father rips wide open access into His holy presence. The point is clear. This is my Son, sacrifice accepted. Presence of God made available. Sins put away forever. This is His work. The One who came to us by the water and by the blood. These two events are objective facts from history. Okay? They're, they are messianic works of Christ that are locked in history as objective facts. This is what Jesus did. Okay? It's not something that Jesus continues to do. These are, these are works that Christ accomplished. And in a sense, they stand like silent witnesses in our conscience. Okay? But there's a third witness that John introduces that's not like that. John introduces the third witness as the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is not a silent witness that's locked in history, these works of Christ. The Spirit is an ongoing testimony pointing back God the third person of the Trinity pointing back. Look at what the Savior did. He is the Christ of God. Look at what He accomplished on the cross. So you have these historical facts of the Messiah. And then you have God the third person of the Trinity. God the Holy Spirit pointing back to these events perpetually throughout history. These are the three witnesses. Listen to John chapter 15 verse 26. Jesus says this, But when the Helper comes... Whom I will send to you from my Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. So this is what He does. This is the ministry of the Spirit. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? That is a request that the things of Jesus would be the most vivid thing in your affections, in your mind. That's, that's His main language. is to exalt the work of Christ, to exalt the Son. And so I want you to think about this. These threefold witnesses, this, this testimony of the Messianic work of Christ, and this ongoing testimony of God the Holy Spirit. And I want, you to, I want us to, to worship God for this. Think of how kind God has been to you. To you. Nobody in this room deserves this. Not only, not only, Did the second person of the Trinity invade human history on a rescue mission and finish a work of substitution on your behalf? Died for your sins. That's enough for all eternity. Raise your right hand if you deserve that. Nobody. Not only did the second person of the Trinity die for our sins, 
the third person of the Trinity, continually beats on our hearts saying, this is true. This is God's Christ. He pursues us in our stubbornness. He convicts us of our sin. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He makes the gospel burn in our hearts. He shows us our need for the Lord Jesus and His work. So raise your left hand. If you deserve that, if you deserve to be pursued relentlessly by the Holy Spirit of God. And yet this is what He does. This is what He does. Knocks at the door of our hearts, pointing us back to the work of Jesus. Nobody deserves to be pursued like this from God. This is how much grace and mercy that God has given us in Christ. I can think about, I was converted at 20 years old. And I can think of how many times over and over that I was exposed to the things of Jesus and could care less about it. And and the truth that we see here is that he pursued me still. I rejected him. I was bored with him. I refused to serve him. And what did he do? He kept coming after me. He kept coming after me, pointing me back to the gospel. And one time... That gospel came with power and with authority in that same Holy Spirit whom I've rejected for years at that point regenerates me and makes me a new human being. Makes me a new man. That is mercy from God. Mercy from God. This is the witnesses that John is calling us to. There's three of them. And he tells us that they're a unity. That they're in perfect agreement with one another. They say the same thing. And and when he sums this up, he calls that what we just talked about. The historical works of Christ and the present ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, that's the testimony of God. That is God's testimony to this world. And I want that phrase to carry a lot of weight to you. Because if God has testified to this world, that means we got to respond to it. We'll talk about that in a second. But he says this interesting phrase in verse 9. He tells us that... A part of life in this world. We know know that God's word, God's law in the Old Testament, that matters were established by two or three witnesses. You see that in in Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19. You see it, Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 18, that two or three witnesses can establish a matter. And we know that just part of living in God's world, every one of us receives human testimony. We receive the testimony of men. Verse 9, you say, well... No, I don't believe it. Yes, you do. You, you receive millions of testimonies of people. How do you know that the Holocaust happened? You weren't there. You, your, your knowledge of history, period, is dependent on human testimony. You receive all kinds of human testimony all the time. And what he says is there's no person without exception. It's just part of life in this world. And if you receive that, he says the testimony of God is greater. It comes with exceedingly more obligation. Uh, Sadell said this even uh, last week. He said, what do we call people that say the Holocaust never happened? He said, we call them crazy. They deny established matters from history. Okay? And you're going to see that God calls somebody who rejects his testimony something far worse. Far worse. The fact that God has testified creates an obligation on our end to respond to what he has said. And to render a verdict about Jesus. Who is He? So let's read this. Last, last three verses. Verse 10. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so one of the things that God's Word does a lot is it polarizes uh, two things. You have stark contrast. Okay? And, and you see that here. You can only do two things with the testimony of God. You can only do two things with the Gospel. You can receive it or you can reject it. You can believe it or you don't believe it, okay? And, and, and this is really important because we, we almost always in our sinfulness want to create this third category, okay? I'm going to call it the mushy middle. Uh, even in the past 30 years, the American church has created a third category called the seeker, okay? Even though God's Word says there is none who seek God, somehow they found one. That they named a whole system of a way to do church after it. And, and, and what's being said there is that there's this mushy middle. There's, you know, you got this fully accept what Jesus said, fully reject what Jesus said in this mushy middle where I just, I'm, I'm just checking things out. I'm just not sure. Okay? And what you see in, in the way that John closes is that's not an option for us. There is no neutrality regarding the testimony of God. None. You either receive it or you do not receive it. You either have the Son or you do not have the Son. No mushy middle. Nobody has half the Son. Nobody has one foot into salvation and the other foot not. You either are in Christ and you believe the gospel or you are outside of Christ under God's judgment for not believing the gospel. I find, I find that a good reminder for me to wake me up um, to, preach, to preach Christ. And so... Here, here's one way to think about that. This is maybe one way to help you. Um, almost every week we have uh, visitors um, at this church. And most of the time, and I love this about this church, most of the time uh, members of this church are bringing their friends that they are evangelizing, that they are sharing the gospel with, that they have met, they have talked about the things of Jesus. They are having ongoing conversations about Jesus. And they bring them to church to meet the people of God, the people that love Jesus and, and, and worship Jesus. And we love that. We love that. There's, there's nowhere else that we would, we would rather you be. There, there's no higher desire that we have for you, uh, if that's you this morning, than you would hear the things of Christ. Okay? But I, I want to I use this to, to give you a special reminder this morning that what this passage teaches, okay? if that's you and you have been engaged about the gospel, you have been exposed to some of the truths about Jesus, and you're just not sure, okay? You're thinking about it. You're considering these things. You're just not sure yet. Whether you're just not sure it's true, or you're just not sure you're willing to follow it. What this passage teaches is that every moment you spend in indecisiveness towards Christ is the moment that you spend rejecting the Lord Jesus. And you need to know that. That you thinking about the gospel... There's no safety in that. The only safe place is for you to receive God's testimony, to believe what God has said about His Son, about His Son. So there's a word for urgency in these passages.
And I want to close with just a few thoughts. God demands that His testimony be believed. He didn't chunk it out there and could care less with what we do uh, with what He has said about Jesus. He demands that we believe it. And in fact, unbelief is, is, is framed up in some of the most strong words that I, that I know of in all of Scripture. Look at that with me, verse 10. Look at that. First uh, John chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever does not believe God, and then it says this, has made him a liar. How in the world can you frame it up stronger than that? He just said, to refuse to believe the gospel is equivalent to standing before the one true God and saying, you are a liar. You have told lies about your son. Do you see that? This is the wicked sin. The wicked sin of unbelief that would assault the one true God with this charge of liar. Liar. So, all you have to do in your life to commit the blasphemy of all blasphemies. All you have to do is not believe the gospel. Is not receive what God has given you about His Son. And you are guilty of a heinous sin. Of calling the one true God a liar. The blasphemy of all blasphemy. That's why God's word is clear. That the eternal wrath of God is what hangs over every unbeliever. Okay, Unbelievers, you are not just a victim of not knowing enough or considering enough things. This verse says you're a criminal. That you, re- that you refuse to believe God's testimony. And that you call God a liar. Okay? This is nothing more than what the passage teaches. Nothing more than what it teaches. But there's another response. We have verse 10 through 12. We also had those who believe his testimony. So you have these contrasts. Okay? One has eternal life, one doesn't. One has the Son of God, one doesn't. One commits the greatest of all blasphemies, and the other receives the greatest of all blessings. The greatest of all blessings. Unbelievers, greatest of all blasphemies. Believers receive the greatest of all blessings. According to verse 10. Everyone who, who believes the gospel receives an inward witness. You believe and you have that testimony, according to verse 10, inside yourself, in yourself. Okay? So think about that. You remember what we said about God the Holy Spirit? He's the one that pursues you. He says, Jesus is true. He's glorious. The gospel is real. The gospel is powerful. And He knocked at your heart for years. Some of us. That verse teaches... That he's not outside knocking anymore. That God who testifies to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ comes and indwells us. He lives within us. Listen to how Romans chapter 8 describes it. Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is our birthright in Christ. That we have the third person of the Trinity inside us. And He is whispering, persuading our hearts that we belong to Christ. We belong to the Lord Jesus. We have been saved by His work. Not only that, verse 11 tells us that believers receive eternal life. Eternal life. And we talked about this. Yes, that means life forever. Life into eternity. But that's not even the main thing that it means. Okay? A wrong way for you to understand that would be that eternal life is an, is an unending extension of life as you know it right now. That's not what God's Word says it is. Literally, it's life from the age to come. Life from the age to come. 
And God's word talks about it. It's not just you go to heaven and you have eternal life. We have it now in Christ. We presently possess eternal life. It is a present possession. And so don't just think it never ends. This is life of the highest kind. The highest order of life. We have it. Okay? Life as God intended it. We have it. Life of God Himself in the soul of man. Pulsing through our souls. We have the life of God within us. We have eternal life now. Now. Jesus taught us this in John chapter 17 verse 3. This is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what it means to truly live is to know Jesus. That you know Christ. You are finally alive in this world. You now know what it means to live as God intended you to live. You know the Father and you know His Son. That's eternal life. That's eternal life. And so I want, I want you to think about this as we close. A Christian is an amazing thing. Is it not? To be a Christian is an amazing thing. Think about this. Think about this. We have the third person of the Trinity knocking on our hearts constantly saying, giving us gospel comfort, gospel assurance. You're saved. You belong to the Lord. You are safe in the covenant. You have been saved by the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ finished the work on your behalf. That's an amazing thing. And then on top of that, we have the life of God pulsing through our souls. Life of the highest kind. We are alive in Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And then he blows the top off of all this in verse 12. Not only that. The Word of God teaches that every believer has the Son. S-O-N. That's the mega bomb, right? You have the Son if you believe God's testimony. You possess the Lord Jesus. Remember what we said about Him. The eternal purpose of God, everything is about Him, always has been, always will be. Everything created for Him, for His glory. And we have Him. We have Him. He is our possession. He, he belongs to us. He has made Him. He has given Himself to us. We have the Son. And so we sing a song around here a lot. And we, we sing to the Lord. And we say, Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. And I amen that. Once you have Him, it doesn't matter what else you don't have. This is the treasure in the field. The one for whom all things exist. And, and the Bible teaches this. This is for every single believer. So your response to this testimony, the greatest of all sins, or the greatest of all blessings. Quick, quick application. Quick application. All this is hanging off of what you do with the testimony of God. And so I want us all to leave out of this place today with three reminders. And this is the first. I want us to be reminded of the, of the wickedness of the sin of unbelief. I want God the Holy Spirit to whisper that to us. That to not believe God's Word is to call God a liar. And so I want us to walk out of here resolved to kill this sin in our life. Every manifestation of of, of my slowness to believe God's promises. Of my slowness to believe God's testimony. I want that stuff out of there. Because I see from this passage that that dishonors the Father. That dishonors Him. Second point. I want us to leave this place today with a grateful heart. 
grateful heart. You think about this. We have heard the testimony of God today. Today, God, God has been gracious to you. You do not deserve to hear the things of Jesus. There are millions of people in this world, people groups all over this planet, that don't know anything of what you just heard. And the sovereign God gave you a gift this morning. You just heard the testimony of God. And for most of us in this room, that's about the 500th time in your life that you've heard the gospel. God has been gracious to you. The testimony of God has fallen on our ears again and we don't deserve to hear it. We are undeserving to hear about the work of Jesus. And so we walk out of this place today grateful, reminded of what God has done in Christ. Third point. I want us to leave this place today encouraged to take the testimony of God and fill the earth with what God has said about His Son. So our job in evangelism as we go out of this place is not to talk about ourselves. We are called and commanded to speak about Jesus. We are commanded by God. We're not commanded to tell people our own testimony. You know that? We're not supposed to be going to people and mainly talking about our personal experiences and God's work in our life. That's fine so long as it accompanies the gospel of Jesus. But God has borne witness about His Son. And it's our job to get that witness to the ends of the earth. And so if you are ever faced with this choice, do I share my testimony or do I share God's testimony? Pick His every single time. Don't talk about yourself. Talk about Jesus. Talk about the finished work of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. So I want us to walk out of here with, with encouragement and, and, and resolve that we would fill our homes with talking about what God has done in Christ, our neighborhoods, what God has done in Christ, our workplaces for, with what God has done in Christ, our city with what God has done in Christ, not just ourselves, but what God has done in His Son and among the nations of what God has done in Christ. This is the testimony of God, not of man. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we ask God that You would make it effective. We ask, Lord, that You would visit Your Word by the power of the Holy Spirit and that You would cause it to bear fruit, Lord. Make us like Jesus. Make us more like Christ. Give us more love for the Savior. God, call us into worshiping Jesus more and more and more. God, thank you for this testimony. Thank you for the work that you have done for us in Christ. Thank you, Lord. We are undeserving. And we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.